The Strange But True story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hi there, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Things Are About To Get Weird. If this happens to be your very first time listening, welcome. I am so glad you've stumbled across the podcast. My name's Chayaz and I have a lifelong obsession with strange but true stories. I created this podcast in order to share some of these bizarre stories with you. I love to dive deep into any that I come across and I'm very happy that so many of you are as fascinated as I am by all things weird. I do apologise today if my voice sounds a little odd. I'm currently trying to fend off some kind of cold or virus or something. So that's what's going on on that front. Last week I was feeling a bit smug that I hadn't had a cold all winter because I was convinced that I'd finally nailed the combination of vitamins that I was taking and I've been eating really healthily. But clearly the universe was waiting in the wings to call me out. So here we are, it serves me right. Anyway, enough of all of that. Today, I'm going to be telling you all about the mysterious case of the man known only as Peter Bergman. This is not only a very strange story, but it's also really sad too. And I hadn't actually heard about it until I had a message from one of our OG listeners, Simon. As soon as he told me about it, I started reading every article I could find on the case. It really is bizarre. So a massive thank you to you, Simon, for bringing this one to my attention. As with all of the unsolved cases I feature on this podcast, I think it's important that we keep talking about these stories that are considered cold. Much like with the Angel of the Meadow case I covered and the disappearance of Russell Bowles, too. Before I begin, I did want to give a quick warning as this story does contain mentions of a person intending to take their own life, as well as discussions about serious illnesses too, so as always, I just wanted to make you aware in advance. As with all of our episodes that deal with stories of this nature, there will be mental health resources linked in the show notes. With that said, let's get into this truly baffling case. Most accounts of this story begin with the events of the 16th of June 2009 in the seaside location of Ross's Point in County Sligo, Ireland. The Ross's Point beach is renowned for its stunning views, sandy shores and peaceful atmosphere, but on this summer's morning almost 14 years ago, its history would be altered forever by a tragic discovery. On the 16th, a man named Arthur Kinsella and his son Brian had headed down to the beach, arriving at the car park around 6am, as Brian was training for a triathlon. He wanted to fit in an early morning run and a swim in the sea, and his dad decided to join him. When they arrived, the sea fog which had been hanging over the water had all but dissipated, and the tide was out quite far when they stepped onto the beach. Brian set out on a run towards the sea, overtaking his dad in the process, ready to get in some training time in the open water. As Arthur walked along the beach and watched his son head towards the ocean, he noticed something out of the corner of his eye that didn't look quite right. The more he looked, the more suspicious he became and Arthur began to walk closer towards the section of beach close to the rocks that had caught his attention. As he approached, he soon realised exactly what he had stumbled across. Tragically, it was the lifeless body of a man who appeared to have drowned. Arthur shouted Brian back over to him to tell him what he had found. 
and the pair noticed immediately that there were no footprints in the sand surrounding the man's body. Arthur is quoted in the Irish Times as saying, It was the body of a person and he appeared to have drowned and was laying face downwards on the sand. He looked about 65, I thought. We walked around the body just to make sure that he was dead and I actually placed my hand on his ankle and it was marble cold. Arthur contacted the authorities immediately, who took statements from the father and son shortly after they turned up at the scene. From the very beginning, they noticed several strange things about the man who was sadly very clearly deceased. The first of which being what he was wearing. Although he did have on a pair of purple swimming trunks, he also had his underwear on over the top of them, and was wearing a navy t-shirt which was tucked into the trunks he was also wearing a waterproof watch. The combination struck the police as a bit odd, and as they searched the rocks around where his body was found, a number of his belongings were soon discovered, which have been widely reported as comprising of the following items. Size 44 black leather fin comfort shoes, which were manufactured in Germany in 2002, dark socks, a black leather CNA jacket, navy CNA chino trousers, a black sleeveless Tommy Hilfiger jumper, and a black leather belt which featured the phrase Key West USA, though it was made in Italy. However, there was nothing amongst these items which gave any clues as to the identity of the man. As police were carrying out this search which turned up the man's belongings, his body was taken to the Sligo University Hospital and a post-mortem examination was ordered to try and determine what had caused his death. The autopsy was carried out the following day by pathologist Clive Kilgallen, and what it showed came as a surprise to the officers handling the case. There were, in fact, no signs that the man had drowned, and especially not in salt water, so this was completely ruled out as an explanation in his death. However, what the pathologist did find was that the man had been very unwell, actually suffering from terminal prostate cancer. It was so advanced that it had spread to his lungs, chest and even bones, and it was estimated that he would have only had weeks to live. But ultimately, his official cause of death was listed as cardiac arrest or a heart attack, and any notion of foul play was taken off the table. But this odd set of post-mortem results wasn't the only strange thing that came to light in the immediate aftermath of the man's untimely demise. Upon further inspection, there was something bizarre about the clothing found not only on the rocks, but on his body too. Each item had had all labels cut out of it, so it was very difficult to find out any information about the clothing, bar the brands of some pieces which were denoted by their logos. The way the clothes had been found was interesting too. They weren't scattered over the rocks, but instead folded and placed into a neat pile. It appeared as though they had been removed, arranged and left in a very deliberate and controlled manner. There were also several smaller items found in the pockets of his clothing, including just under 150 euros in notes and coins, some aspirin tablets which looked to have been bought in Germany, and a bar of hotel soap which was later found to have not been stocked in any hotels in Ireland. At this point, the police knew they had to expand the scope of their investigation to determine who their John Doe was. 
a review of CCTV footage from around the county began, and investigators were soon handed their first lead in this puzzling case. The unknown man was spotted on security footage arriving at Sligo train station just four days before his body was found on the beach. The train he had travelled in on had come from Derry, around 86 miles or 138 kilometres away, and this link was confirmed by video evidence of him boarding the train in Derry earlier that day. As the investigation continued, it became clear that from Sligo train station, the man had hailed a taxi and asked to be taken to an affordable hotel. The first one he turned up at was fully booked, but after trying the Sligo City Hotel, he was able to check in for the three-night stay he requested. CCTV showed him walking into this hotel at 6.52pm, where he was greeted by the receptionist before filling in some of the necessary paperwork. Now, although by law, all hotels and bed and breakfasts were required to ask their guests for a form of ID, it appears as though this rule was sometimes not abided by. In this case specifically, the man's ID was not requested, but he did write down a name and address in the hotel register. The name he gave was Peter Bergman, a surname which is of German origin, and the address was for a house in Vienna. However, Whilst he was reported to have spoken with either a German or Austrian accent, a couple of things didn't quite add up. Firstly, there was the fact that he spelt Bergman with two N's at the end, which is far less typical as a surname in Germany. And secondly, and far more significantly, the address he provided was found to be fake. The street name and postal code he gave don't exist in Vienna, and it didn't take police long to realise that this information was not accurate. When it came to the matter of his name, though, it took the authorities a bit longer to conclude that this too was false. By the following month, police found it strange that no one had contacted them looking for a missing friend or relative by the name Peter Bergman. And when they tried to find evidence that a Peter Bergman had entered Ireland via plane or boat, there was nothing matching this name on any passenger records. And so the mystery deepened. A quick note to say that I will refer to the unknown man as Peter for the rest of this episode, as it was the name he chose to go by before he passed away. So with no real name or other personal identifying details to go on other than his physical appearance, investigators turned to the only resource which had provided results thus far to try and piece together Peter's movements between the 12th and 16th of June 2009, which was of course CCTV footage. Video captured by his hotel's cameras showed Peter leaving the premises at least 13 different times, each time carrying a purple plastic bag that was clearly full, but when he returned, he was always empty-handed. Some sources have suggested that he had a collection of plastic bags in his room and took a different one out with him each time, but I think it's much more likely that he had one or two that he folded and put in his pocket when empty, but that's just my opinion, we don't know for sure. But just to make matters even stranger, although Peter was captured on CCTV walking around Sligo on his numerous outings, there is absolutely no footage of him actually getting rid of the contents of the purple plastic bags. Not one clip. 
Yet he did this at least 13 times, so whether he was discarding his belongings in spots he knew weren't covered by cameras, or whether it was a complete fluke, we don't know. But it's very, very odd. But that's not all. Even though the number of CCTV cameras throughout Sligo is extensive, Peter was never captured speaking on a mobile phone or talking to anyone who wasn't offering him practical help i.e. the hotel receptionist or a taxi driver. So I think it's safe to say that he likely wasn't meeting anyone to hand off or sell his belongings, at least if we're going solely by the CCTV evidence. But there was at least one interaction Peter had that was captured quite clearly. The day after he arrived in Sligo, he visited a post office and purchased 10 stamps the kind which would have covered postage of a letter overseas, along with several airmail stickers. But like with so many other elements of this story, aside from this initial knowledge of the purchase of the stamps, we know little else. It's not confirmed that he actually wrote or posted any letters off, as there was no video evidence of this taking place. It certainly could have happened, but it's yet another question mark hanging over this story. Now, whilst there are these gaps in the closed-circuit video footage of Peter's final days, it's not as though he wasn't seen by other people who remembered the tall, slim man with glasses, grey hair and a German or Austrian accent. And possibly the most notable of these eyewitnesses to Peter's movements was a taxi driver named Gerald Higgins, who picked Peter up on the 14th of June, the day before he was due to check out of his hotel. Peter told Gerald that he was looking for a place to swim, and Gerald suggested that Ross's Point was an ideal destination due to its beautiful sandy beaches and impressive views. In an interview with the Irish Times, Gerald said, I got out of my minibus to say hello because a man with a map wishes to go somewhere. He was a bit chatty, asking if there were buses going out there, and I told him yes about once every hour. He went on to describe what happened when they arrived at their destination, saying, We drove around Ross's Point. I showed him the two beaches, and I stopped at the car park at the entrance to the beach. He did not get out, but then said, Can you bring me to the bus station? After Gerald dropped Peter off at the bus station back in Sligo, he recalls the moment they parted, saying, I gave him my card and told him if he wanted a taxi again to call me. He was grateful and paid me with a brand new 20 euro note. During the course of their journey, Peter told Gerald that he was indeed from Austria and Gerald noticed that he had a gold tooth which he thought was quite a distinguishing feature. And this observation proved to be valuable, as after Peter's body was discovered, he was indeed found to have a gold tooth on the upper right-hand side, which helped confirm that Peter was the man Gerald interacted with. The next day, Peter was due to end his stay at the Sligo City Hotel, and he requested a late checkout time of 1pm. We know that when he left the hotel, he was wearing dark trousers, a black leather jacket, a pale blue shirt and a black tank top and was carrying a hold-all, a bag with a shoulder strap and the purple plastic bag he'd been seen with numerous times. By 1.32pm, 
He was seen on CCTV at the Sligo bus station, but he no longer had the black hold-all bag with him, and once again there was no evidence of how or where he had disposed of it. The next interaction we know that Peter had was with a man named Vincent Dunbar, who was the depot inspector at the bus station. He remembered that Peter had asked him when the next bus to Ross's Point was due to leave, and that he looked to be quite distracted during their brief conversation. Vincent told the Irish Times that afterwards, quote, he just turned and walked away. He just looked like a man who was stressed or in pain or not himself. Vincent also recalled that Peter did not look like someone who was heading to the beach for recreational purposes, saying, you'd think he was maybe just going to meet somebody or going on business. I learned afterwards that he went for a swim, but he didn't strike me as a man that was going for a swim. The way he was dressed and what he was carrying with him. If anyone was going for a swim, you'd usually know. They'd have a towel rolled up and togs rolled up. He wasn't like that at all. He looked like a man that was on business. After arriving at Ross's point, Peter was first spotted on the beach around 4pm, and then again at various points throughout the late afternoon and into the evening. Husband and wife, Dermot and Paula Layeth, saw Peter walking along the sand and in the shallow parts of the water around 9.30pm, with his trousers rolled up to his knees. They described his movements as strange, and the way he stepped barefoot in and out of the water as somewhat ritualistic. He was seen several more times by members of the public, carrying the purple plastic bag in the area by the beach, until the final sighting of him alive at around 11.50pm. The high tide was expected around half an hour after this point, and Peter was seen walking along the edge of the water, once again with the plastic bag in hand. And sadly, as we know, it was the following morning that his body was discovered by Arthur and Brian Kinsella. Now, the detective inspector who oversaw the case at the time was named John O'Reilly, and he has spoken out about what he believes happened several times over the years. Speaking to the Sunday World newspaper, he said, It's highly likely that his plan was to end his life, but the man above or someone somewhere did it for him. And this does make sense to me too. It seems that Peter had intended to take his own life at the beach, having got rid of what we assume were all of his personal effects, and having arrived at Ross's point with no hotel booked and no onward travel plans arranged. But perhaps before he had chance to fully enter the sea, or perhaps even after a shorter swim, it looks like his body went into cardiac arrest as he sat or lay on the beach that night. It's a truly tragic story and one that has left so many more questions behind than I think Peter ever intended to happen. Clearly, he had gone to great lengths to avoid being identified, down to removing any geographically identifying tags from his clothing. And in my opinion, I think he wanted to perish at sea to increase the chances that his body would never be found. Another police officer involved in the case, Sergeant Terry McMahon, spoke to the Irish Times about his theories on Peter's possible background, saying, He had training of sort, I think, so it would be easy to see that he was ex-military or ex-police. Why I think that is because, in relation to the cameras, how he was able to go about his business without people learning anything more about him. And again, this would add up in my mind too. 
the more I think about it, the more that I don't believe it was a coincidence that Peter would not be captured on any kind of security footage discarding any of his belongings. Across the numerous trips from his hotel where he returned without the items he had left with in the purple plastic bag. The consensus seems to be that he wanted to pass away anonymously. And although his body was found, Peter Bergman's true identity remains a mystery to this day. Peter was buried in an unmarked grave in September of 2009, in a special plot owned by the health service executive. This is because, should his body ever need to be exhumed after being claimed by a relative, the process would be more straightforward. But as of now, in February of 2023, no one has ever come forward to say that Peter was a friend or family member of theirs. And here is why this just feels so very odd to me. The police haven't been working with an artist's impression of what they believe he looked like, like in the Angel of the Meadow case I covered last year. There are multiple clear, full-body images of Peter going about his business on his final days in Sligo. They have information about his distinguishing physical characteristics, like, for example, his gold tooth, and they also know that he was likely from Austria. And this isn't all. The authorities in Ireland actually took the step of sharing Peter's DNA profile with Interpol, which is the International Criminal Police Organisation. But strangely, not a single hit or match has ever come back on this. As it stands today, the police are still open to receiving any information which could lead to revealing Peter's real identity. And in the most recent news articles about the case, specific contact information is provided, which I will, of course, leave in the show notes. I'll also be posting several photos of Peter from the CCTV footage on our Instagram page. As I always say when I talk about cases like these, I know the chances of anyone listening knowing anything which could help are minuscule, but it only takes an article to be read or a podcast episode to be heard by the right person one time to help solve a case, and you never know when that could be. So that is almost all of the information we know about Peter Bergman's last few days. And I have a lot of thoughts on this story. The first thing I think it's important to say is that I was in two minds about whether to cover this case in the first place. As whilst it's an incredibly odd and mysterious story, I think it's also undeniable that Peter likely did not want to be identified. His case has been on my list of podcast episode ideas for a good few months. And it wasn't until I thought of it from a different angle that I finally decided to make this episode. It's so unlikely that a person could make it to Peter's age in this life without having someone who would notice his absence. Even if that wasn't a family member or a friend, it could have been a neighbour or a colleague or even a doctor. And if someone you did know or care about vanished without a trace, the not knowing what happened to them could be the worst feeling of all. I had this vision of someone out there, perhaps someone in Austria or another country in continental Europe who maybe doesn't speak English and would not have naturally come across an article from the Irish press, missing this person who disappeared from their life. And that really got to me. Also, the fact that he is buried in a communal, unmarked grave is something I find haunting. I believe that, at the very least, everyone deserves to be remembered by their real name. 
The more I read and thought about this case, the more theories started to form in my mind and I wanted to share a couple of them with you. Bear in mind that these are purely my own speculations. I'm not speaking in factual terms, they're just thoughts that have come to me during the course of putting this episode together. The first is to do with the way that Peter may have entered Ireland. We know that he arrived in Sligo from Derry, which is in Northern Ireland, and there's every chance that he could have broken his journey down into multiple stages along the way. For example, he could well have travelled to Northern Ireland by boat from England, perhaps via ferry, which would explain why no details about him were available on any Irish flight manifestos. I'm sure ferry passenger logs were also checked, but no one knows how long he'd been in Ireland in total, so the scale of this line of investigation would likely have been enormous. And obviously, they would have only been able to go off visual identifiers, as Peter's real name is still unknown. It would have only taken a few tweaks in his appearance to throw this angle of inquiry off course very quickly too. I do believe that tracing back his movements further than Derry would have helped to uncover his identity, but I'm sure there were very valid reasons and challenges faced by police to explain why this wasn't possible. But then we get to the stamps Peter purchased. And this is the detail of this story that really sticks out in my mind. The stamps were not found amongst Peter's remaining belongings on the beach. And although we can't know for sure, I do wonder whether they were used to send letters to a number of people who knew him. My personal theory is perhaps that Peter wrote to several people once he'd arrived in Sligo, explaining that he knew he was terminally ill and that he had chosen to end his life anonymously in Ireland. If he requested that they should not come forward to identify him should his body be discovered afterwards, this would explain why no one ever has. As I say, there is no proof of this and this is just the product of my own wonderings, but this would help to clear up some parts of this mystery. What it wouldn't explain though is why Peter chose Ireland, and Sligo in particular, as the place to end his life. There are just so many unanswered questions in this case. And I think that's one of the reasons it's still covered in the Irish press to this day. Many of the investigators I've read interviews with talk about how Peter's story has stayed with them, because even though it's been almost a decade and a half since his death, it seems inconceivable that someone could remain unidentified when there is so much information available that should make it easier. The DNA profile alone is incredibly compelling and I would be so fascinated to know whether the police have been able to upload this information to any kind of genealogy database to see if there's a distant family match out there. I know that England isn't as advanced on this front as places like the US are, so I wonder if that's also the case in Ireland too. All I can hope is that if Peter did contact any loved ones to tell them of his plan beforehand, that they at least had some closure in knowing what happened. And if not, I hope that one day word of this case can spread far enough so that they can get some answers. As with much of the rest of this story, this conclusion feels somewhat vague and full of what-ifs. But perhaps ultimately, that was Peter's intention all along. Well, I know this was another heavy story and as I said at the start, there will be mental health resources linked in the show notes, as well as details for contacting the Sligo authorities if, by some miracle, you or anyone you know has any information on this case. 
I would be so intrigued to know your thoughts and opinions on Peter's story. Do you think he meticulously planned every detail of his final few days? Do you believe he purposefully avoided being caught on camera getting rid of his belongings? Or whatever else was in the plastic bags? If it wasn't clothing or other personal effects, what do you think he could have been discarding? I feel like this is the kind of case that we could discuss at length, so if you would like to share your own views, there are lots of ways you can get in touch. I'll be giving you a full rundown of all of them shortly, but first it's time to switch lanes for our weekly outro feature, Weird Media. So if you loved the Jordan Peele films Get Out and Us but haven't got round to watching Nope yet, this is your sign to give it a go. I watched it at the end of last year and I thought it was fantastic. I love Jordan Peele anyway, but this film blew me away and ended up being absolutely nothing like what I thought it was going to be. There were elements that I just didn't expect whatsoever, but it was brilliant. Granted, I didn't watch the trailer beforehand. I'd only seen a few stills and posters and read a couple of brief tweets about it, but still. It was definitely one of my favourite films of 2022. Every single performance in it is truly great, but for me, Kiki Palmer was extra amazing. I love her. I don't want to give too much away, but if you're in the mood for something a bit off the wall, a bit unsettling, something that's going to keep you on the edge of your seat, then Nope is something I would wholeheartedly recommend. Again, without giving anything away, I recently read that there's been talk of the possibility of a sequel, which I think could be phenomenal. There is so much scope for more in the world that Jordan Peele created with Nope and I definitely hope that this could be given the green light in the future. What I would say is it's the kind of film where you have to properly dedicate your attention to it. It's not a scroll on your phone at the same time situation. Personally, I try to keep my phone out of reach somewhere when I'm watching a film because I hate getting distracted by notifications and being pulled out of the moment. But with this one in particular, definitely get comfy and absorb it all because I think it's a real treat. Do let me know your thoughts if you check it out. And if you've already seen it, I would love to know what you made of it too. Okay, before I get to all of the ways that you can get in touch, I wanted to shout out the articles and sources which helped me in my research for today's story. I mentioned it a few times as we went along, but there was that truly fantastic article from the Irish Times by Rosita Boland, published in June 2019. It was so helpful and I'd highly recommend giving it a read. There was a piece from The Sunday World by Neil Featherstonhoff from November of 2021, as well as an article from theindependent.ie written by Shorsha Mulgrew in October of 2021. There was also a piece from anglocelt.ie by Seamus Enright from November of 2021, which detailed not only the case, but a documentary that was made about it in 2013 called The Last Days of Peter Bergman. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm definitely going to check it out. Right, here are all the ways that you can get in touch and share your own thoughts too. We have both the main podcast page and the private discussion group on Facebook. If you search things are about to get weird on there, you should find both of those. And all you need to do is request to join the private group. On Twitter, our handle is at about to get weird, and on Instagram, it's at things get weird podcast. 
then of course you can always pop me an email at thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com with all of your own weird stories and your thoughts too. And also if you listened to our episode last week, you'll already know about this, but there's the new edition of our Patreon page, which I will leave linked in the show notes. A huge thank you for listening today. I hope my voice hasn't sounded too horrendous. And thank you for all the many ways that you support the podcast too. Shares on social media or through word of mouth with any true crime or strange story enthusiasts you know are incredibly helpful. And if you'd like to leave a quick star rating on Spotify or review on Apple Podcasts, that would also be incredible too. I'm so grateful to anyone who shares the love for the podcast. It honestly means the world. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird but the good kind of weird. Thank you.